Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I'm so happy to be with you again, Wendy. Thank you, my love. Happy to be here, too, with you. Thank you for hosting this with me. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> we had a fun night recently. I uh, had a little date. It was a gorgeous Pennsylvania September evening, and we went out for dinner, and I had a special treat that I just wanted to share with everybody, and I'm sharing this to to encourage you to look for those little sacramental moments, the moments that something just blesses you in a particular way. I don't expect that the whole world would be as blessed as I was by what happened to me this night, but it was pretty dang special. <laughs> it started with looking at the list of beers on the chalkboard in the restaurant. Right. At the bottom of the list was... A pumpkin ale. A pumpkin ale. I had to try it. And I had a pumpkin ale before that was really, really good. In fact, we talked about it on, on, our, another... on our podcast. Yeah, We did? Yeah. Do you... You remember what episode that? It was called Atomic Pumpkin, I think. Oh, they yeah. Named that actually, actually had an episode named uh, yeah. after it. So here we go again with another <laughs> pumpkin beer. It wasn't the same one. No. <laughs> uh, it came to the table, and it was it was pretty delicious. It wasn't like as good as the Atomic Pumpkin. Okay, okay. But it was pretty good. But then the waitress came back, and she said, oh, I forgot to mention that we usually serve this in a glass with a... How, what does she call it? With a cinnamon rim. With a cinnamon rim. Right. And I was like, what? What is a cinnamon rim? <laughs> she said, would you like that? I said, heck yeah, I'd like that. And she brought out a glass that the rim had been dipped in cinnamon and sugar the whole way around. And every sip of this pumpkin beer became this glow. I love cinnamon. If you don't know that about me, <laughs> I love cinnamon. Yeah. And each beer, what, what did I say? Love it. It, it quadrupled I, the delight. Yes, it quadrupled the delight. <laughs> and yeah, here's there was a problem though because I wanted a little bit of that cinnamon with every sip. So by the time I the cinnamon was gone, I was only halfway done with my beer. So I asked the waitress, "Can I have another glass <laughs> with the cinnamon rim?" Right. And she brought me another one, and I poured the half beer left into the new cinnamon rimmed glass. And I've never had such an exquisite delight in it, drinking a beer. It was it was really wonderful for me to be there when you had that wonderful experience. You you know you my husband does travel a lot and uh, you know sometimes has amazing food and drink in different places where he goes and I, he'll tell me about it afterwards. But this time I, I you was were there. You there. you were an eyewitness. For the moment. Heaven was smiling on me and I smiled back. Yeah, it was and beautiful. I just, I share that to encourage you to look for those moments. Like these are, I'm, I'm serious. Heaven broke through, really. And that, that cinnamon rim beer, as I received it, it became a, an assurance that heaven is real. Heaven is real. I know mm. it's real because mm. of that cinnamon rim beer. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Any updates from the Theology of the Body Institute? Uh, yes, we have a very exciting retreat we're offering on September 21st for our patrons. And if you want to become a patron to be part of this, you are more than welcome. We'd love to have you. Check out the link below. The Desert Stream team, headed up by Andrew Kamiski, uh, their team and I are going to be offering a retreat that we're calling An Introduction to Sexual integrity and redemption. 
So this is going to be an, an introduction to a full course that the Institute is going to be offering in early February of 2022. So uh, early next year, we're going to be offering a full course at the Institute called Sexual Integration and Redemption, offered by Desert Stream team, Andrew Comiskey and his team. Check out the link to their ministry below as well to learn more. We're going to be doing an introduction. Andrew is one of the greatest guys out there doing healing ministry for those with sexual and relational wounds. And guess what? That would be all of us. Mm. Uh, we all have sexual and relational wounds. So I would strongly encourage you to take part in this retreat. Is it a virtual event? It's a virtual event. Yes. Sorry, I didn't clarify that. Mm -hmm. um, kind of assumed that everybody might assume that, but we shouldn't assume. Um, yes, a virtual event on September 21st. And if you're not able to make it on the actual day, September 21st, it will be recorded and put in the um, on the homepage of our patron page. So again, you can check all that out by looking at the link in the show notes. That sounds great. Yeah. Our first question today is from a patron named Archie. Hello, Archie. Thank you so much for your support as a patron. We're so grateful to you. Archie says, my four-year-old son asked me if the Blessed Mother died. I didn't know how to answer that, so I asked my husband. He told me that I can choose what to believe because she didn't have to die, but she could choose to die like her son. We only know that she went to sleep. What do you think? Did she die or not? And does she already have her glorified body? Well, I'm just going to quote from John Paul II here. In an extended catechesis he gave on the Blessed Mother in the 90s, he said very clearly, and I would almost say even definitively, that Mary died. Um, there are some theological traditions, that's a small t, traditions, in, in which we get this idea of a dormition or a falling asleep because we're not so sure, did she die, did she not die, did she not die? Uh, John Paul II says very clearly, she followed the way of Christ and she died. However, she also followed the way of Christ and was raised and assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So yes, in, in answering that second part of the question, does she have her body? Yes, that's the Feast of the Assumption, which we celebrate on August 15th. It was declared um, a dogma of the Catholic Church that Mary was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory in 1950. It doesn't mean Catholics did not believe it prior to 1950. Um, it was just that it was defined as a dogma in 1950. But I find that history quite interesting. It's the pivot of the 20th century, smack dab in the middle of the 20th century, this century of, of horror and degradation of the human body, right? Soon after the gas chambers were discovered in Auschwitz and the, the many other gas chambers, not just in Auschwitz, um, the church declares, soon after that degradation, of the human body. The church declares the highest dignity of the human body, the destiny of the human body, is to participate bodily in the eternal exchange of the Trinity. That's what the Declaration of the Assumption declares. Um, 
But what followed? What followed? I would, I would say, here's my image of that Declaration of the Assumption in 1950. What followed was the sexual revolution. Here's my image of what happened. When that dogma was proclaimed in 1950, it's as if there was the definitive crushing of the serpent's head. Mary now has her heel firmly on the head of the serpent, but he's in the death throes, and his tail is flailing, trying to bring down uh, our understanding of the body to a, a hellish reality. And that's what the sexual revolution has been. I would consider the sexual revolution is the diabolic response to the church's declaration of the supreme dignity of the human body declared in the Assumption. And what do we have in the Assumption? The church already, of course, proclaims the ascension of our Lord's body, but that's the bridegroom going into eternity. What we have with the, the dogma of the Assumption is the bride is now joined to the bridegroom, the new Adam, the new Eve. We believe right now there's a male and a female body participating in the eternal exchange of Trinitarian ecstasy. The goal, the end goal of the better term than sexual revolution is pornographic revolution. The mm -hmm. end goal of the pornographic revolution is to blind us to the dignity and glory and destiny of the body. And man, has it done, uh, uh, shall we say, a hell of a job in blinding us to the dignity of the body. So, Wendy, you want to add anything to what I was saying? No, I, I think that answered her question very well. All righty. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. How should I respond when someone is speaking about their physical attraction to another person? I always feel unequipped to navigate such conversations. I believe there is goodness to be discovered but I'm often inclined to cut it short. What do you think is going on in me? Do you think, Wendy, that she's asking about, you know, comments that people might make, um, you know, oh, she's hot, or that guy's eye candy, or is that... Yeah, that is how I'm taking it, that it's kind of a, a surfacy um, dwelling on people's appearance without talking about the real person at all. So this questioner's question is, what is going on in me? What do I think is going on in this person who's struggling to navigate that? I think this person is recognizing, as, as the questioner said, there's something good in our attractions to other people, but when we limit it to the merely physical, there's something distorted, there's something inadequate, there's something incomplete, and when we leave it there, it's actually destructive. Because in a very real way, when we reduce the human person to the merely physical and fail to recognize that the body leads to an interior mystery, uh, it's not that we are spirits trapped in bodies, right? We can go to the other extreme too and say the body is inconsequential, it's just the spiritual that matters, or it's just interior beauty that matters. No, 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 no. What, what we're after is integration. And I think what this questioner is feeling is the disintegration that is inherent when we make comments like, oh, she's hot, or check him out, or, you know, and we're merely 
reflecting or merely attracted to the physical. There is a rupture that is happening between the body and the soul. And the reason that is so dangerous is because the very definition of death is the separation of body and soul. So in a very real way, when we reduce people to a list of physical qualities, in a very real way, we are, in our own eyes, we're killing that person because we're rupturing the body and the soul. Here's an in that I have found, uh, and when I use it in conversation or in courses or seminars, when I'm at a parish, for example, it never fails to land in terms of helping people make distinctions. And I will say, I'll, I'll ask the women this question first. I'll say, ladies, do you prefer to be looked at or do you prefer to be seen? What is the difference? That's the question I'm holding out to people. What is the difference between being looked at and being seen? And I'm talking about this in the context of Jesus saying, they look, but they do not see. And inevitably, as I press in with my audience, what's the difference? Uh, I, I can inevitably find someone who, who is able to articulate it, that the look stops at the surface. But to be seen penetrates the mystery of the interior. And the body, John Paul II says, the body is the sacrament of the person. The body physically reveals an interior personal mystery, and that makes the body itself a personal mystery. The body is not just something, the body is someone. And when we merely look, we reduce someone to something. When we see in an integral way, we recognize the body as a personal mystery, the revelation of a person. Uh, that is the key. And, and to navigate that is tricky as this questioner is is acknowledging but i think you can you can plant a little seed by talking about the difference between merely looking and seeing mm -hmm. and what do we prefer do we prefer when we put it back on ourselves and we say okay do i prefer when someone's merely looking at me and evaluating me measuring me based on some kind of cultural standard of physical attractiveness do I feel threatened by that? Do I feel loved by that? Do I feel uh, insecure, inadequate, uh, uneasy, unloved, unacknowledged, un unappreciated uh, by when I'm held to those standards uh, and merely looked at? If we can bring it back to the person himself or herself, what do you desire? Do you desire to be seen or looked at? Well, then maybe we can take another step and say, hey, can't we all acknowledge that we should treat others as we prefer to be treated? And if we don't merely want to be looked at and evaluated and treated as something, but we want to be seen and acknowledged and loved and affirmed and appreciated as someone, that could start a person on a journey to, to begin to see other people. Uh, it's a work of grace, but that, that kind of conversation, getting people to reflect in those directions is itself an, an opening or can be an opening to grace. Yeah. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, uh, 
I tend to just live in a, a world where I don't often hear those kinds of comments. You know, I'm kind of connected with moms and children and church people, and it's not so much the thing to talk about, you know, somebody being sexy or hot or, you know, those kinds of things. Occasionally I do, and I think it kind of throws me off and I feel a little taken aback by it and don't want to continue the conversation. Um, so I could relate to this questioner for sure, just of feeling a certain discomfort about a conversation about physical attractiveness. Although I also do appreciate physical beauty and depending on the person who's making the comment, I can, you know, engage in a way that allows us to reflect on the gift of a physically beautiful person with a certain depth to it, like an acknowledgement that it's a gift that can also be burdensome at times because as much as beauty blesses and consoles us, it can also be grasped at and to be the one that's grasped at can be so discouraging. That's what you were talking about, right. being looked at or grasped at. Um, so I think when, um, you know, there there is a place to have those kinds of conversations where we're appreciating that there is a certain happiness we may find. But in all of that, I'm not a single person talking about like somebody as hot or, you know, exciting. So I'm, I'm coming at it from that whole other perspective. But, you know, that's kind of my experience of this. I'll just add this too from John Paul II. Uh, so important. He's, he's so balanced here and always, always moving us in the direction of integration, right? He says we shouldn't think that physical attractiveness is somehow in itself problematic. He calls it the raw material of love, mm -hmm. right? When we find ourselves physically attracted to someone, that can be built into love. However, he says, if it's, if it's not directed with a, a proper gravitational force in the direction of love, it can take another force and pull us in the direction of, as we've been saying, treating someone as some thing. Uh, just yesterday, I was out for ice cream with Isaac, mm -hmm. and the person who was serving our ice cream was very physically attractive. And there's the question in, in my own interior, am I going to treat this person as someone or something? Mm -hmm. And I can recognize in my fallen humanity the, the inclination, the pull towards something, right? Grasp at, use for my own gratification. But I don't want that. I truly don't want that. I, I want, and I was actually journaling about this this morning in my prayer time, uh, that question, what do you want, came to, to my mind from Jesus. He says it right at the start of the Gospel of John, what do you want? And I said, Lord, I want to see that person's beauty and every person's beauty without violating it. I want to behold it without violating mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. And that's at our heart of hearts, that's what every person wants. So maybe that could also spur a little, I don't know, uh, into a, a deeper conversation. Yes. Our next question is from Emily. Hello, Emily. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Could you please define 
eros and agape? I watched Christopher's video on YouTube where he says that eros is meant to express agape. I also gathered from the video that eros is the desire for unification and that it is meant to change us. Is that correct? But how do you live eros, the desire for unification, when physical unification is not possible? Aha, these are great questions. So let's just begin with defining eros and agape. So the church has borrowed these terms from the Greek language. Uh, eros, in the traditional sense of the word, is the desire for everything true, good, and beautiful. Mm. The desire for the transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful. We don't tend to think of it in those terms. We have, in our English language, we get the derived word erotic, and we have seriously bastardized that word in our pornographic culture. We have pornified that word to the extent, I remember when I was first reading Theology of the Body in the early 90s, and in my mind, the word eros was synonymous, the erotic was synonymous with the pornographic in my mind as a young man. And I remember really a, a necessary corrective that I got from John Paul II, that I was confusing the Greek word eros with the Greek word porneia. That's where we get the word pornography, right? And porneia is a, is a perversion, a twisting, a distortion of eros. Eros gets twisted and distorted in as much as it gets separated from agape, another Greek word for love. Um, eros, by the way, a word for love in the Greek language, agape, a word for love. One of the problems in English is we use the word love for so many things. I love potato chips. <laughs> I love my wife. I love my dog. I love my car. Uh, I, I, you know, there are all kinds of sh different shades of meaning. Uh, the Greeks had different words for love, eros and agape being two of them. Eros uh, took on not only this desire for the true, the good, and the beautiful, the transcendentals, it took on in the Greek language the, the connotation of romantic love, um, of the love of, of man and woman, sexual love, uh, and rightly so. Um, agape in the Greek language is the term for love, which is a sacrificial love, a self-giving love. And so we, we tend to think that agape is... Well, that, that works for Christian love, that works for charity, that works for God's love. So many people, uh, early church fathers, would use the word agape to describe divine love, but they would also use the word eros. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, um, quoting from the fathers of the church, says that there is no more mad eros than that which is displayed in the love of Christ the bridegroom for his bride, the church, on the cross. The mad eros of the cross. But Benedict XVI, in his document, um, God is Love, the whole first half of that document is a beautiful reflection on the relationship between eros and agape. And because eros has these sexual connotations, and because Sex, sexuality has the connotation in our fallen world of being lustful, um, distorted, problematic, 
even sometimes we, we can fall into the Manichaean heresy of thinking sexuality is evil in itself. That is not the truth of the matter. That is not our faith, right? Manichaeism is a heresy the Catholic Church has condemned over and over and over again, but because that Manichaean mentality can seep in, we can tend to think eros is equated with lust, and therefore eros is that selfish kind of love, and then agape is that sacrificial kind of love. This is not the way to conceive of it. Even though you'll find this in the writings of some Christian authors, this is not how the church understands it. Rather, the church invites us to the integration of eros and agape. I would strongly urge people to read Pope Benedict's encyclical, God is Love. I was so excited when it came out in 2006 that I wrote a book about it. That book is called The Love That Satisfies. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes to these things. We'll also put a link to a, a homily that Renero Cantalamesa gave. He is the papal preacher. Uh, he was the preacher to John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis. He's now a cardinal, Cardinal Cantalamesa. In 2011, he gave a lecture called, um, I believe it was the, 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 the Two Dimensions of Love, Eros and Agape, or something like that. We'll find the right title, and we'll, we'll get you the link to that in the show notes. It is beautifully insightful. He says, when we separate Eros and Agape, on the one hand, uh, he says, well, when we separate the two, we, we lose love altogether. On the one hand, Agape without Eros is a cold yes. love. Agape without Eros is a cold love. But eros without agape is a self-seeking love. He says we have to hold the two together. Um, and he says you can see in the secular world you often have an eros split from agape, but within the churchy world <laughs> you often have an agape split off from eros. Yeah. Right. And when Christians are saying keep your eros away from my agape, the secular world is, is all the more content to say, well, keep your agape away from my eros. <laughs> Both are destructive. Both are disintegrated. Both are ruptured. The Christian invitation is the integration, the wedding, the marriage, the coming together of eros and agape. And we see this so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5 when St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is an eros that is so purified that expresses that it expresses agape. Mm. Am I uh, am I leaving any part of her question unanswered there, Wendy? Uh, Emily concludes with this: How do you live eros, the desire oh, right. for unification, when physical unification is not possible? Yes, physical unification is not the only kind of unification. Uh, no one lived the integration of Eros and Agape as a married couple more potently and powerfully and beautifully than Joseph and Mary. Mm. And yet they never came together in a, in a sexual embrace. Let us remember the sexual embrace is merely the sign in this world of our ultimate destiny, which is holy communion with the divine, with love eternal, with God, what the Bible calls the marriage of the Lamb. Right, And this is where Eros, really and truly, and this is what Pope Benedict XVI says in God is Love, and it goes the whole way back to the fathers of the church, Eros is the desire in us that seeks God. That's ultimately what it desires. 
uh, Pope Benedict, um, before he was Pope, in his, le- in his uh, excuse me, not letter, but in his book, Introduction to Christianity, he's reflecting on the line in the Song of Songs. And what is the Song of Songs? It's the great erotic love poetry of the Bible. And right in the Song of Songs, he says, Eros expresses a desire for a love that is stronger than death. And he goes on to say that the cry of Eros for a love that is stronger than death is answered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the cry for a love that is stronger than death is no longer merely a dream, Cardinal Ratzinger says. It's not just a dream. This dream has come true in the resurrection of Christ, Mm. the bridegroom. So the true fulfillment of Eros is not in physical sexual union. That's just the sign and the foreshadowing of the eternal union that the Bible describes as the marriage of the Lamb. That's what we're destined for. Eros is the desire in us that seeks infinite truth, infinite goodness, infinite beauty. In other words, Eros is the desire that seeks God. I wonder if a very simple way to apply this as if you're beginning with these concepts is to, um, in, in Mass, during the Eucharistic prayer, which is our prayer to be prepared for communion, if in that time, if, if the, the thoughts of Eros and Agape coming together and what that stirs in our hearts, if we could be putting that on the altar Beautiful, in our minds, Beautiful, you know, just yes. placing that and, and asking the Lord to stir our desire for what is truly good and beautiful, that if we've become sort of just sort of turned down our desires out of yes. fear or neglect, yes. that yes. he would turn up that dial, turn up the preach heat it, Wendy, preach it, preach it, in preach our it. hearts <laughs> as we're praying in mass that he we could ask him to increase that desire and see what fruit is born. Amen. Amen. And let us turn here to the Blessed Mother. She was the only human person whose eros never wavered, never got misdirected. Her eros was always aimed at infinite love. What happened at the Annunciation? At the Annunciation, Mary's eros was open to God at such a depth that she literally conceived eternal life in her womb, virginally. This, this, her virginity here, though, is not the negation of eros. Her virginity is the superabundant fulfillment of eros in the eternal marriage. The Annunciation is a marriage proposal. Heaven proposed marriage to Mary, and the bride said yes, and she conceived virginally God's Son. This is the superabundant fulfillment of eros aimed at the eternal. Uh, this is what we're made for. This is the teaching of our faith. We have to reclaim the truth of Christianity. That tr- Christianity, and here I quote again Pope Benedict XVI, Christianity is not about suffocating the longing of the heart, but about freeing it so that it can reach its true height. And he calls that the pilgrimage of Eros. Mm. We must all go on the pilgrimage of Eros, not 
suffocating it, but freeing it so that it can reach its true height. And what is its true height? Nothing short of participation in the infinite ecstasy of the Trinity. That's where Eros will take us. St. Francis de Sales says, Eros is the passion in us that rushes towards divinization. That means to be participating in the divine life. This is our faith. This is mm. Christianity. What does Jesus say? Go into the main streets and invite everyone to suffocate their desires. No. No. <laughs> Go into the main streets and invite everyone to the wedding feast where eros, the yearning, the insatiable desire for infinite satisfaction is met and fed and satisfied in the eternal wedding feast. Christ came to set the world on fire with an eros that is agape and with an agape that is eros. Glory be to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. And I know there are people out there that you know, whom you know, that need to hear this episode. So hit that share button and help us get this good news out to the world. And until we meet again, may you know in your bones and in all of your glorious, sacred, erotic longings mm. that you are indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.